Uh, to give you kind of a, a little bit of background of where this came from, um, a, a few years back I gave a sermon uh, on Enoch, and I, I had a couple of people make a comment about the fact that uh, he's hardly mentioned in the Bible, and they, they thought it was interesting that, that I had brought a lesson on something that's so trivial, I guess, in a sense. Um, and I was, uh, when, when Clint talked to me Wednesday and said, hey, can you take Sunday night um, for me? And I said, yeah, sure. I thought, what am I going to talk about? And so the inspiration for this sermon was kind of saying, what is some uh, little mentioned thing that I might do a story about or just kind of tell the story of? And I started out with Abigail. Um, Abigail is a, a, one of David's wives in uh, Scripture, and there's very little mentioned about her. And I, I started out there, and somehow I wandered into uh, Yabeth uh, Gilead, and I thought, oh, here we go. This is a great town. I'll talk about this town. And that took me to another place. So anyway, uh, that's a long-winded way of saying that we're going to talk about a number of different things, none of which is about Abigail. So <laughs> uh, we'll cut her out tonight. Um, Clint's, uh, Clint's sermon this morning, uh, he talked about Ecclesiastes, which has always been a, a passage uh, of Scripture that, that I have enjoyed for many of the reasons that, that uh, Clint hit upon this morning. And um, I know I told you to go to, to Judges, but I'm going to just read you verse 9 of Ecclesiastes 1. It says, What has been is what will be, and what has been done is what will be done. There is nothing new under the sun. And that particular passage ties in with kind of, again, what, what brought me to this lesson. Uh, Harry Truman once said that the only new thing in the world is the history that you don't already know. Uh, Lord Boilingbrook, who was an 18th century political philosopher, said that history is philosophy taught with examples. And Daniel Borstein, that was one of the librarians of Congress, he's now passed away, but uh, he's, he said that trying to plan for the future without a sense of the past is like, like trying to plant cut flowers. And all of that kind of together brings me to uh, where we're going to, to start this evening. The history that is presented to us in Scripture a lot of times is something that we kind of see as mundane or, or maybe not that important. We tend to focus a lot on other things. And one of the problems with not paying attention to history is that we oftentimes lose deeper meaning to the things that we read in other places in Scripture. And that's true in anything. Um, if you don't understand the history of something, then you really can't fully and completely understand it. And so, um, you know, 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17 tells us that Scripture is given for many purposes, and part of that is teaching. And so what we're going to go over tonight is really not a sermon in, in what I would call the traditional sense. It's more of a lesson kind of taking our minds back to something maybe that maybe you've heard before, uh, maybe you haven't, but either way, we're going to go through uh, this particular story. So with all that in mind, let's go ahead and hit into uh, to Judges here. Judges chapter 19 through 21 tells a, a story that, um, that, again, is one that maybe we're not as familiar with. As we hit upon it, I think you're going to see some things. Um, that's kind of light. Dale, would you hit the light for me back there? Um, if you can get out of your pew. Uh, <laughs> he's having a little trouble. Um, so that maybe it'll be a little, a little darker for you. And the reason I put these slides together, there's, there's a, I think, five or so here. Uh, these are just maps that I wanted to use um, so that we could 
could kind of all be looking at the same map. If you look at the maps in the back of your Bibles, you'll be able to see the same sorts of things, but uh, maybe not the, the same detail. And I see looking at my map that it's not going to be very good anyway, because there's, uh, you're not going to be able to see a whole lot on some of these maps. But nonetheless, uh, what we see here, in, starting out in Judges uh, chapter 19, verse 1, it starts with the sentence, there was no king in Israel. And uh, that's going to be uh, important kind of to consider here a little bit later. But the, the story here starts out that there was a Levite who had taken a concubine. Now, this concubine came from Bethlehem. And on this map, if you could see it, down here is Bethlehem. All right. So this, uh, this map is showing the, judge, the time of judges. And so all of the, the highlighted uh, people over here are judges and kind of areas that they were in. Uh, this particular area right here is where the tribe of Benjamin was established. Uh, down here is Judah. And so we have uh, Bethlehem here located in Judah. And uh, just, north of, just north of that is uh, really the area we're going to focus on for the most part. But um, what we have there then is this Levite goes to Bethlehem. He travels down from the area up here around where Bethel is. And he travels down and takes this concubine and takes her back uh, to his home. But she's not happy there. She's unfaithful to him, and she returns back to Bethlehem. And so uh, as you read through this story, what you find is that it says in chapter 19, verse 3, her husband arose and went after her to speak kindly to her and bring her back. And again, that's an important point in this story because if we don't look at the context of the history here, some of the things we're going to see are going to sound harsh. Uh, and they are harsh, so I'm not trying to soft pedal it, but I want you to notice that this Levite is saying that he wants to go and speak kindly to her to talk her to coming, into coming back with him. So this is not something where he's mad and angry that she has done this and he's going to go down and beat her and drag her back, back with him. He wants to go and do this in a kindly way. The other thing I think is worth pointing out here too is that maybe a, an understanding of what is meant by concubine. Um, because, you know, for years I had a wrong understanding of that term. Uh, I thought a concubine was more like, I guess what I would say, a harlot uh, is kind of the, the, the thought that I had. And that really is not true. A concubine was a wife that was at a lesser status, maybe is a good way of putting it. And so again, we might look at that rather harshly today and say, well, that's not right. You can't have multiple wives. But in this time, polygamy was accepted. And so you had perhaps the wives that were up here and they had certain rights that were, uh, that were stronger. Uh, and then you had the concubines that were below them. And so in some sense, you might see a concubine as a slave uh, sometimes that's, she's referred to as that. But for the most part, these concubines were, um, were really uh, secondary wives, I guess. And so when it talks about Solomon having 700 wives and 300 concubines, that's kind of the, the language that's used there as well. So he goes to get this concubine, and as they are traveling back, now he stays at her father's house for a few days, I guess I should say. And so again, he's talking her into coming back, and they're traveling back. And so when they travel back, they passed uh, the, uh, the city of Jebus, if you look there. And it may say in your Bible in parentheses after that, uh, Jerusalem. Now, the, the thing that's interesting about Jerusalem is, of course, it's seen as the holy city of David now. And it's seen, you know, nothing could be more Israel than Jerusalem. 
But if you look at the history of Jerusalem, it's gone back and forth many times over the years, uh, even in more modern times, uh, of course, too. And so they passed Jebus, which is Jerusalem, and that's where the Jebusites uh, are located. And so uh, what's happening here is this Levite has passed down from the north to the south. He's gone to Bethlehem. He's retrieved his wife. He's now headed back north again. And so he has to pass uh, past Jerusalem. And I think this next slide blows it up a little bit better. Uh, so down here is Bethlehem. Here is Jerusalem, or Jebus, as, as it probably says in your Bible. And up here is where he's returning back to. And so he's, he's making his way through here. And what happens is that as he passes Jerusalem, his reason for passing Jerusalem is that it is full of Canaanites. And so in other words, we don't want to stay with those people. We're going to keep going. All right. So he keeps going and he comes to uh, up here to this uh, northern reach to the city of uh, Gibeah. All right. Now, as he approaches Gibeah, this is a city that is um, a city that is in the tribe of Benjamin. And so, again, maybe you can see it, maybe you can't. But right here, this is the tribe of Benjamin. And so this is where those people are settled. And so as we, we look at this, he he's, comes to this city and figures, you know, this is going to be a good place to stop. Um, you know, we're not going to stay down there in Jebus where all those Canaanites are. We'll stay here. And so he enters this city with his, uh, with his wife. Um, and as they go into there, uh, they stop in the city square. And what they're looking for is a place to stay. Now, again, contextually, remember that we're in an ancient time when there's no Holiday Inn to pull into or anything like that. And so as you come to a city like this, you would be uh, expecting that someone there would take you in for the evening. And so that was a, a form of hospitality in doing that. So they're sitting in the square and no one is taking them in. And so at the very end of the day here, what happens is this older man who comes from up here in this area up here of Ephraim, and it says that he is uh, a farmer in the plains of Ephraim, and apparently he, for whatever reason, lives in Gibeah. So he comes in and he sees them sitting in the square and he says, well, this is odd, you know, why are you sitting here? And they said, well, no one will take us in. And so as a result, he says, well, I'll take you in. And so he takes them into his home. Uh, they shut the door and he's entertaining them. And so later that evening, as he's entertaining his guests from out of town, uh, what happens is men of the city, it says, come and start banging on the door. And they say that they want this old man to send out the Levite so that they may know him. And that's, of course, in, in the biblical sense of the word know. All right, so what they are saying is they want to have relations with this man. All right. Now, obviously, the general, the old man says, well, I'm not going to send out this guest in my home. And so he begs with them, no, uh, I'll tell you what, I'll send out my daughter and we'll send out his concubine. We'll, we'll give you these two women if you'll just leave him alone. All right, and these men that have come banging on the door, that's not good enough for them. They don't want that. No, that's not what they want. And so they, they say no. Well, what happens then is the Levite forces his concubine out. And so as a result, and again, this is, this is uh, part of the harsh part I said that would be coming. What happens is basically that they abuse and assault this woman all night long. Um, the Bible is very clear about that. There's no question of what they were doing, all right? And so I'll, I'll let you uh, uh, imagine that yourselves. So after this ordeal for this woman, what happens is she returns at daybreak. 
So, you know, the, the, the daybreak when the light is just coming, but the sun is not risen yet. And she collapses on the doorstep of the place where her husband and this older man have, uh, have spent the evening. And as she does, she dies there on the step. And so you can get a sense of how horrible this abuse must have been that she went through the night before that she collapses and perishes on this doorstep. So the Levite opens the door in the morning and he is prepared to leave and he sees his concubine. He takes her, he places her on his donkey, he goes back home and the oddest thing I think you can imagine, he cuts her up into 12 pieces and he sends one piece to each of the tribes of Israel and says, now what? And so as a result of this, uh, the, the people of Israel all come together at, um, at Mizpah. And let me check here. I want to make sure I'm on the right, uh, right slide. Uh, they come together at Mizpah in, so, in order to, um, to have a council, I guess you could say. What are we going to do about this? You know, how are we going to, to handle this? And if you drop down and look at uh, Judges 19.30, it says there, such a thing has never happened or been seen from the day that the people of Israel came up out of the land of Egypt until this day. Consider it, take counsel, and speak. So I honestly don't know, and I really didn't find a whole lot of definition in this and any commentaries or things. I don't know if what they're saying is they've not seen such brutality in what the men did to the concubine, or if they're talking about nobody has seen anything like this where someone would divide up this concubine and send her out in, in such a manner as he did. But either way, they're disturbed by it. I think the more likely is the former. Uh, they're railing against what these men had done to this woman. And so in this council at Mizpah, and I believe that Mizpah is on here. Actually, it's not. Let me go to... Uh, this slide. Here we go. So here's Gibeah right here, Jerusalem just below it. So the, the, the part that doesn't show up is Bethlehem's down here. So this is where he was traveling from coming back up north. So he, he, this all happened in, in uh, Gibeah. Mizpah is where Israel has now gathered. Uh, 400,000 men have gathered here. And so this, this is not some minor thing. They're not treating this as um, no big deal, all that kind of thing happens and, you know, trying to push it under the rug or anything. They all gather and so they're going to, to deal with this. And so the decision is made that they are going to take one in ten men from that gathering and they're going to send them uh, in order to deal with this problem. And so they go to the Benjaminites and they say, we, we want you to send these men to us. We're going to deal with them. And, and what they're going to do is they're going to put them to death. They've decided that's going to be their punishment. You know, again, I didn't bring up all the scriptures, but we can go to the law and see that the law is clearly justifying them in using the death penalty against these men. So they say, We're, we want to put these men to death, send them to us. And the Benjaminites say, no, we're not going to send them to you. So Israel then says, well, we can't have this. We're not going to have this. And so as a result, Israel then and Benjamin, the tribe of Benjamin, effectively get into a civil war of sorts. And so Benjamin rises, uh, raises up an army. Israel already has their army. And so uh, what's going to happen now is they're going to clash. And so as they, they do clash, 
Uh, there's men from all over Benjamin, including men from Gibeah, that gather together. And there's about 26,000 or so of them that gather. And so, you know, there's, there's a bit, little bit of a, uh, an imbalance here in that Israel is probably sending more like 40,000 initially, and Benjamin is sending more like 26. But the difference here is big because one of them is in a defensive position and one of them's in an offensive position. And so if, if you've ever read anything of military history, you know that if you are inside of a city fortress, that's a better place to be than to be the attacking force. And so what happens here is Judah is selected as the first tribe to go up against the Benjaminites. And so Judah goes in and thousands are killed. And then they make another attack the next day. On the second day, thousands more are killed. And then they say, well, maybe we better ask God if this is what we should be doing, which they do. And the answer is yes, continue on. And so they go the third day. And on the third day, they are finally victorious. And victorious to the point that they, they nearly slaughter the entire tribe of Benjamin. And at some point in this process, they decide we can't do this. We can't destroy the, the, the tribe, uh, tribe of Israel. And so what's left here is, is really kind of this remnant, if you will, um, of Benjamin that's left. And then the Israelites begin to consider another problem that they've created for themselves. Because in those days, it wasn't warring factions of men against men lined up in lines with, you know, shooting at each other. This was a much more brutal warfare that, that we would consider today to just be atrocious. It was a warfare where you went in and if someone lived in that city, they were killed. Didn't matter if they were an infant, didn't matter if they were a child, didn't matter if it was a woman, an old man, someone who was screaming, I didn't agree to any of this, you know, it didn't matter. If you were of that uh, tribe, then you were going to be killed. So they have killed the women, they've killed the children, they have killed the men, and all that is left is about 600 men who had... Um, Flee, uh, fleed off and gone to hide in the, uh, fled, excuse me, thank you. Uh, they had fled and gone off into the hills or into the wilderness, uh, I guess I should say. So at this point, you know, Israel begins to say, well, now what are we going to do? Because when they went, went and met up there at uh, Mizpah and had their council, one of the oaths that they took, they said, we are not going to let our daughters marry these people. We're not going to let our daughters marry anyone that is of the tribe of Benjamin because of what the Benjaminites had done. Again, not what the men had done in Gibeah, but what the Benjaminites had done in protecting them and not acknowledging that what they had done was evil and should be punished. And so uh, because of this oath, now they're stuck because they said we made an oath to God that we're not going to let these, these men marry our, our children, our daughters, but at the same time, they have no women and it doesn't say this in the Bible, but basically they have no women because we killed them all. And so now they're kind of stuck. Well, another problem that kind of presented themselves, itself I should say, is that in their council at Mizpah, they had made another oath. And another oath that they had made was that anybody that didn't participate with them in this action against Benjamin, that that, that that those people, I guess I should say, were going to be punished. And so this is where Yabesh uh, Gilead, and I found 10 different pronunciations of this, but the one I, I lit upon was Yabesh Gilead, uh, or Gilad, 
or if you prefer, it could be Jabesh, or it could be Yebish or Yebesh. Uh, but any of those, we'll go with Yebesh. Uh, so anyway, this is a town that is located up here. It's over here in, in Gad, the tribe of Gad, which is also referred to Gilead. This is a large plain up here. So again, down here is Gibeah. Here's Jerusalem. This is Ephraim where the, the old man was, was tending to his, uh, his crops. And way up here in the half tribe of Manasseh is Jabesh Gilead or Yabesh Gilead. So up there in this town, they had not sent anyone. And so the Israelites realize this and they say, hey, maybe this is a solution to our problem. We made an oath that we were going to kill anybody that didn't participate in this. So what do they do? They go up and they attack Jabesh Gilead and they kill everyone there except for 400 virgins who they then take and hand over to these 600 Benjaminites who have no wives. In addition to that, uh, they also um, hand over or tell, tell the Benjaminites that they can take from the daughters of uh, Shiloh another 200 wives. And so in this way, the Benjaminites now can continue on. And the thing that I, I mentioned when we started this was at the very beginning, the first verse said, in those days there was no king. The last verse of, this, uh, of, of, of Judges says in Judges 21, 25, uh, there was no king in Israel and everyone did what was right in his own eyes. I thought that was an interesting bookend for this story, that even though there is a reference to them calling on God to see what, what should be done in one instance, there's not a lot of talk in this section about them turning to God for much of anything. And it starts with, they had no king, and it ends with, they had no king, and everyone did what was right in his own eyes. And that kind of tells us something about this. Now, Gibeah is mentioned again, if you, if you were to go to Hosea 9.9, it says there, they have deeply corrupted themselves as in the days of Gibeah. He will remember their iniquity, he will punish their sins. So this is one of those places that doesn't get maybe the billing that Sodom and Gomorrah do. But it's a place that has a history like that. And so even years later, when Hosea is writing his, his prophecy, he's referring back to this because people remember this. You know, tens of thousands of men were killed here. The tribe of Benjamin is almost slaughtered here. And as a result, Gibeah is remembered in this negative way. Now, all of this is the preface to the story of Yabesh Gilead. And incidentally, that's kind of like saying Columbus, Ohio or Cincinnati, Ohio, uh, because this again is Gilead. And so really, um, you could say Yabesh instead of saying both of them at the, at the same time. But anyway, that, that's the way it's distinguished. Uh, sometimes it's used um, with and without that as you, as you read through. But always in scripture, it's always referred to, as far as I know, as Yabesh Gilead. So we have, that's all the first mention. And it's not a very good Thing that you hear about this particular city, Yabesh Gilead. The second mention, if you flip over to 1 Samuel chapter 11, um, Saul has just been named king. Uh, that's, uh, that's kind of the preceding chapter in chapter 10. So Saul has become king. But if you remember, after Saul became king, there really wasn't a lot going on with Saul. In fact, Saul is out tending to his fields which tells you that he was kind of not sitting on a royal throne, you know, waiting for people to come to him for advice or anything like that. He's 
working the, the land like a farmer would. And so this is kind of the, the context that brings in here um, to what's happening. Now, Yabesh, in this case, uh, what's, what's going on in these, uh, these years that we're talking about now is that they are under siege by a, uh, the king of the Ammonites, whose, uh, whose name is Nahash. Nahash means serpent, which I thought was interesting that this serpent would be after them. But uh, nonetheless, there you go. So he's the, uh, the king of the Ammonites. And, and so he's laid siege to this. Now, there's, there's a verse, and your Bible may have a footnote to this. Chapter 1 of this, uh, excuse me, verse 1 of this chapter says that there's some writings that include a little pre-story and some that don't. So this may or may not be in your Bible. Um, I think it's the uh, Revised Standard Edition or American Standard, one of the two that does have it. But like, I don't think the NIV has it, for example. But the, the pre-story, if you will, is that uh, there may have been a, a situation where this king had conquered that whole area, kind of this general area, and there were 7,000 that fled up into Jabesh Gilead, and the rest had their right eye gouged out. Now, the only reason why that might be important to this story is that what is the word that comes to Saul is this city has been surrounded. They're put under siege by this king. And so the king now had this, uh, this king has come in, put them under siege, and he says, I'm going to destroy you. And they call out and they say, we'd like to make a treaty with you. Uh, tell you what, we'll be your servants and, and pay tribute and all those things. Basically, we'll be your slaves. And he says, no, that's not good enough. I want you to uh, gouge out your right eye uh, for everybody in the city. Now, of course, not only does that sound kind of disgusting, but on top of that, you know, in this time especially, uh, you need two eyes so that you can perceive depth, right? You need two eyes if you're going to be in battle, in other words. You can do a lot of things with one eye, but one of those is not be in battle because it's critical in battle to know distances. You know, you can't, be a, you can't operate a sling or be an archer or throw a spear or anything if you can't tell distance. And so it was considered pretty much to be a a means by which you effectively limited someone from being able to be in war. And so uh, it not only is that, of course, too, but it's a humiliation because now everyone knows that, that you were the person that got conquered and put down by this, this other person. So, um, so some texts have this kind of pre pretext part, but either way, the people of this city are told, you need to gouge out your eye. And what happens then is the elders of the city go and they say to uh, to this attacker, give us seven days. Let us make a call out. Now, I think the fact that he lets them do that shows kind of a, a mindset of his that, sure, bring more people in. Then I'll gou we can gouge their eyes out too because he's a conqueror. And so he's not worried at all. And so sure, fine, go, go make your call. So they make the call. Saul, the new king, calls up an army. Uh, he, he gets the army of Israel together. They come in. And in chapter 11, verse 11, you can read there that uh, the Ammonites are stricken down. And the degree to which they are stricken down is such that no two Ammonites are left together. In other words, in this huge army that had set siege to Yabesh, they were able to destroy them to the point that no two men alive were standing next to each other. They were scattered to that degree. And so... Uh, pretty much a total and complete conquest here. And 
From that time, we can fast forward another 40 years or so to the end of Saul's reign. So Saul's first great victory is at Jabesh Gilead when he conquers the Ammonites. In chapter 31, if you flip over there in 1 Samuel, Saul has now uh, expanded his kingdom. The red line here represents Saul's kingdom. And to kind of put this into perspective, um, Jabesh Gilead is up here. Down here is Jerusalem. So Mizpah would be right about there. Uh, the plain of Ephraim was right here. And so this is kind of the kingdom. And again, as I said before, you'll notice Jerusalem is not inside the kingdom of Saul. Uh, so that, again, a kind of an interesting thing. You'll also notice if you, you can't see it from the cheap seats, but it says Gaza right there. This is the Gaza Strip where the Philistines are. That 20-mile section of land has been something disputed by these people for a few thousand years. So it's not too surprising that we can't solve that in a weekend uh, over tea. Um, so anyway, it's, it's a continuing thing, I guess, my point. All right, so Jabesh Gilead is up here, and Saul is at war with the Philistines. And so what ends up happening here is that Saul's son, Jonathan, who was, of course, David's great friend, uh, and two other sons uh, are killed in this battle. And Saul is wounded by an archer to the point that he's pretty much mortally wounded. And so he falls on his sword, commits suicide. And he does this because he does not want to be taken prisoner and humiliated and, and degraded by uh, the Philistines. And so the Philistines chop his head off and they put it in their, their temple to their god. And they take his body and the bodies of his three sons. There's some debate about whether or not they cut their heads off as well. But nonetheless, they took the four bodies and they nailed them to a wall. Excuse me. And that wall is in Bethshan, which is right here. So across the River Jordan on the east side of, on the east side of River Jordan is Jabesh Gilead. And on the um, west side is this Bethshan. And so they take, the Philistines take them over there, they nail them to this wall, and it's at this point that the Yabesh people are mentioned because it says they hear of this, and their reaction is the men collect together, they walk all night across through this area, cross the Jordan, pull the bodies down of Saul and his three sons, burn them, their bodies, and then bury the ashes in a tree outside of uh, Yabesh. And so uh, it's, it's kind of interesting that they would burn the bodies. There's really no ritual burning in the, uh, in the scripture for Jewish people. And so um, th there's, there's some debate, I guess you would say, about why they would do that. Uh, the scholars uh, that I was reading about, most of them kind of said, well, the, um, the reason most likely is they were worried that the Philistines would come back and... Um, and remove the bodies again, you know, find where they were buried, take them out and, and do more things to them. So by burning the bodies, they were able to prevent that. Um, but nonetheless, this was the, the third time Yabesh is mentioned. The last time Yabesh is mentioned is um, in 2 Samuel 2. And uh, that's when David uh, took over as king. And he actively thanked the men of Jabesh uh, for the, the fact that they had uh, done this pious thing and... and um, and taken those bodies and treated them honor honorably. And so uh, later, um, later on in, uh, in 2 Samuel verse, or chapter 22, verse 14, it talks about the fact that David actually takes uh, the, the bones 
of these men and moves them to the holy sepulcher that, that they had created uh, at that point. And so um, no longer was Saul residing in Yabesh. But what we see here in, in kind of some of the, the things that I want to draw upon, I guess, um, in lessons that we can draw from all of this, Yabesh is mentioned really four times. And I, I should say it's mentioned more, but if you go to uh, Chronicles, if you go to... Um, uh, now it eludes me off the top of my head. But um, there's a couple of other places where it's parallel accounts. And so it's the same story told again. Uh, but it's really mentioned basically these four times. So you have this first time that is this horrific tale of destruction of a city because of their lack of attention to matters that they should be attending to. You have the, the second story and the third story where we see something a little bit better, and then you see the fourth story where we, we finally see them uh, paying back, I guess you could say, Saul for his kindness. And so there's no king, and bad things happen. There is a king, and bad things happen. And then again, there's no king as he's killed, and bad things happen then too. And so, again, going back to the ecclesiastical sort of thing, all of these things are happening. There are these bad things happening over and over, and it's not any worse than what it was before that or after that. So um, the, first, um, the first lesson, I guess, I want to kind of draw from all of this is the quotes at the beginning of the lesson, um, there's nothing new under the sun. You know, people are evil sometimes, and that hasn't changed. You know, we can look at this story and we can see these horrible things, uh, but these things really don't, uh, they don't go away. Uh, the story of, of uh, Gibeah may sound a little familiar to you when I recounted that, in part because it's not the only story about men banging on a door demanding to have relations with a man inside. The two angels that Lot protected are almost the same story. It doesn't quite go the same way, but it's very, very similar. And so here you have under the patriarchal age, a story happening. And then you come into the era of the judges and the same thing is happening. You, know, you can come forward and a lot of times we will say, oh, things are just so bad. Look at how bad people are. Well, and we don't have people banging on doors and demanding to have homosexual relations with people that are visiting our town. And so maybe they're not as bad as they could be. And so uh, we don't want it to go there, but nonetheless, these things, they happen. And there's somewhat of a, a cycle to them. So rather than focusing on that, maybe the thing to focus on is the good in the story. The fact that even then, Lot was willing to protect these people. Uh, even then, we may not like the way he did it, but the old man was trying to protect the Levite that was visiting with him. Um, when we see the story of the, the people of Yabesh going to take care of Saul's body and that of his sons, uh, you know, we, we can focus on these good parts of these stories and say there were good people even in some of the most evil times. There need to be good people today even if we think these are evil times. And that falls to us to us as Christians, to be the light to the world. And so there's, there's our first lesson. Um, when the judges said that they had no king, there was a king. The king was God the Father, and they didn't acknowledge that. They wanted an earthly king. Did that change anything? No. 
the, the story we started with of the Levite and his concubine, that happened in the era of the judges, and we might look at that and say, wow, that's awful. But when they got a king, did that really change anything? No, and in fact, it created other problems for them. So just like them, we live in evil times. Just like them, uh, we need to be reminded that we have a king now. And our king is as capable as the king was back then. We don't need to look to, in other words, our president, our Congress, the leaders of other nations. We don't need to look to these people for direction and for guidance. We need to respect them and honor them for the positions they hold. But who is our king? Our king is the same king that has always been our king. And we need to focus on that and the crown that awaits us if we do that. The last lesson, and certainly I don't mean that these three I came up with are the only ones you could take away from this. I think there's a lot of lessons uh, from this particular story. But uh, the last one that I came up with is that of loyalty and, um, and that of learned lessons, I guess I'll say. You know, Yabeth was a, a city where the inhabitants were ready to accept slavery in order to continue on a few days a few years, whatever they thought they were gonna get out of that relationship with this vicious king that was attacking them from the Ammonites. And so regardless of what they thought, they were willing to take on a horrible situation. Uh, years later though, that city has been transformed somewhat. And now we see a city with, um, with a loyalty, with a, a patriotism, I'll call it, that they're willing to risk their lives to go and honor the body of Saul and bring it back so that it can be properly buried and treated as it should be. And so I think the, the lesson, again, I'm going to point to the same lesson, I guess, look for the good, not for the bad. These people may have done something that uh, was less than honorable. Cowering in front of the advancing attacker is not necessarily something we would hold up high and say, boy, uh, just be like that. I mean, that's not what we would do. But if we look for the good, what we find is 40 years later, they are the ones that are standing up when no one else will and going and taking care of Saul. So um, that's the story of Yabesh Gilead. And, uh, and hopefully you, you kind of see some lessons in there maybe that I missed. I, you know, like I say, I think there's a lot of them. Um, one of the things that we always... Uh, do, of course, when we gather is we offer an invitation. And I think, you know, when we look at a story like this, part of the reason for doing kind of a, a history lesson of sorts is because of the crowd we usually have on, on Sunday evenings. Um, we need to be reminded, I think, uh, over and over and over sometimes of many of the things that we know. And we know them so well, maybe they become almost too familiar to us. And we forget them because they are so familiar. God is in control of things. He's the king. Evil is around us, but that doesn't mean that we have to be a party to it. It means that we need to be the exception to it. And we need to be those people that are willing to stand up and fight for what is right. And so as we offer the invitation this evening, you know, certainly if there's someone that, that is here that would like to be baptized, we always offer that opportunity. Um, for those that are members of the church, if there is uh, anything the church can do for you in encouraging, uh, in prayer, in any way, uh, we have that opportunity as we stand and sing.